and welcome to Global Dialogue, a public affairs program of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. I'm Patrick Ryan, president of the council, and we are pleased this evening to welcome Ambassador Capricia Panevic Marshall, former United States Chief of Protocol and author of the book, Protocol, The Power of Diplomacy and How to Make It Work for You. Welcome Ambassador, good to see you this evening. It's so wonderful to be with you this evening, Pat. I appreciate you asking me to join you. Well, we, uh, we are looking forward to our conversation uh, with you this evening. And uh, our moderator uh, this evening is gonna be Kelly O'Connor and she will be uh, joining us in just uh, a second. Um, but uh, let me take care of uh, a little bit of uh, housekeeping notes uh, as we uh, get going here. Uh, welcome, Kelly. Um, we're going to talk uh, just briefly about uh, the uh, the program tonight before I hand over moderating duties to you. Um, this evening, uh, it's a conversation that includes you, the audience, and the benefit of a live webinar is your ability to contribute your questions and comments to our guests this evening. So please fill out the Q&A box at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Uh, after Kelly's questions and conversations uh, for the ambassador, we'll turn to you for your contributions. Uh, speaking of contributions, let me remind you that you're watching uh, one of the many global affairs awareness programs that your World Affairs Council produces. In the past year, we brought you over 90 conversations with panelists and distinguished speakers on scores of international topics. We've also produced education outreach programs for high schools and university students. We even have a program for young professionals. We have just two asks. First, please participate in these programs. Helping our community know the world is our mission. Second, please include the World Affairs Council among your charitable contribution destinations. We're an IRS recognized tax exempt charitable nonprofit. And please become a member of TNWAC. That's how we know you support our work and it's how we pay our Zoom bill. So thank you for that. One last note, we invite you back on June 15th for our conversation with travel guru, Rick Steves, an expert who single-handedly paved the way for travel to Europe for tens of thousands of Americans. We'll talk about post-pandemic travel, the ability of travel to build bridges, and some of his travel adventures over the last 40 years. Join us on the 15th for Rick Steves. Now, on to our program. Uh, Capricia Panavic Marshall serves as ambassador in residence at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. She is president of Global Engagement Strategies, which advises international public and private clients on issues relating to the nexus of business and cultural diplomacy. From 2009 to 2013, she was chief of protocol of the United States, bearing the rank of ambassador and setting the stage for diplomacy at the highest levels. In this capacity, she worked to leverage US relationships with foreign governments, developing strategies to transform global engagement. Ms. Marshall oversaw six state and official visits, countless working visits, the G20, nuclear security, APEC, G8, NATO, and the Sunnylands Summit, and the protocol arrangements during travel with the president and secretaries of state to 42 countries. From 1997 to 2001, Ms. Marshall served as deputy assistant to the President and White House Social Secretary. From 1993 to 1997, she was Special Assistant to the First Lady of the United States, Hillary Rodham Clinton. In addition to her bachelor's degree in political science from Purdue University, Ms. Marshall holds a Juris Doctor from Case Western Reserve University School of Law. Ms. Marshall is a first-generation American Croatian and Mexican descent. 
In 2013, she was awarded the Distinguished Service Award from the Secretary of State and the Order of the Cross of Isabel la Católica from the Ambassador of Spain. She is a member of the Council of American Ambassadors. She has been named to Elle Magazine's annual Washington Power List as one of DC's most influential women. I'm very pleased to hand over the program for our conversation with our distinguished guest tonight to Kelly O'Connor to start us off. And Ambassador, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's such a pleasure to join you, Pat, and the Tennessee World Affairs Council. And, and you, Kelly, I look forward to our conversation. Capricia, it's truly my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your work in the world of diplomacy. Let's start with your background. Can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing in education and how you prepared for your professional life? So um, as Pat outlined in my, in my resume, um, I did uh, attend uh, Purdue University for undergraduate work. I was supposed to be a civil engineer, but the political science classes, uh, they just seemed a bit more in alignment with my interests. And uh, so without my father actually knowing, um, I switched majors and, uh, and graduated with a poli-sci major and, a, um, and an emphasis in international studies in Spanish. Um, and, but I should dial back just a little bit further. You know, when I was in, I was really, blessed uh, in my high school education that um, I was surrounded. My parents sent me to a, an all-girls school, a Catholic high school, and um, in that atmosphere, there, there was this, this wonderful culture, this very supportive culture uh, by the nuns that, uh, that were teaching us, but by my classmates and the school itself and this, uh, my wonderful um, friends and, and co-students of, of women. And um, so at a very early age, I had this great support group of, of women and how we raised each other up, how we built each other's, um, our, our, our own foundations in what did we want to do with life, how we wanted to strive forward. And so I didn't have some of the um, co you know, complications at an early age that other young women did, you know, with, uh, when you when when you're in a in a uh, boy girl atmosphere in a school that's mixed, uh, that you know there are there are sometimes women their voices and we know this to be the case they just don't rise up, and uh, so I had that great foundation and and I did speak out and uh, so I really do attribute that to my my Cleveland Beaumont School for Girls education and then I went on to as I said. Um, uh, my um, undergraduate work. And from there, my father said, well, at graduation, what are you going to do with that? And I said, well, I'm going to go on and get a law degree. And uh, at the end of law school, I thought, hmm, I'm not quite sure I want to practice. And I believe in, and I, and I talk a lot about this in my book, that you should adopt a, in particular at early ages, a sort of Forrest Gump attitude uh, with your life. Take chances, take risks. And I was really glad that I did. I listened to a college professor who said, hey, you should join this campaign of this unknown governor down in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, I, he's a fantastic person. I think that you would really you know, want to support him. Give him a look. And I did. And I did want to support him. And so from law school, I then veered into the political life and never looked back. 
Well, before we move on to the political life, I have to mention you have a fascinating background. Your mom was a was an immigrant from Mexico and your dad was an immigrant from Croatia, which is just a little UN in your own home. Um, how did that help you increase your awareness of the importance of cultural IQ? Oh my goodness, so very much at a very, very early age. Frankly, unbeknownst to me until I moved on into my government career, but at that early time, it was not only my father's background and my mother's, but we lived, as you say, in a home that was like a mini UN, Kelly. Um, we also had neighbors that were Lebanese and Russian. We had other family members that were Polish and Italian. So our home, there were so many different languages being spoken, so many different traditions being celebrated and so much amazing food that was being served. And I appreciated all of that. I love the differences. I relish that. I learned so much about different regions of the world. And so when I was offered this extraordinary posting by President Obama, uh, I stepped into this position with that as part of my core. And then I got to work with these extraordinary ambassadors from all over the world, the best of the best that are sent to our country. And again, got to celebrate, highlight uh, their unique differences, their extraordinary cultural traditions. It was a, a, a true dream come true. And so I, I have to tell you, I really felt as though I was going the 360 right back into uh, my grandmother's home that I grew up in many years ago. Well, let's jump back to when you were started working on the Clinton campaign. In 19, you worked on the Clinton campaign. And then in 19... 97 at a very young age, you were appointed as deputy assistant to the president and White House social secretary. What do you remember most about serving in the Clinton administration? Oh my goodness. Well, long time ago, Kelly. <laughs> uh, but I was, um, I have to say that, you know, first and foremost, um, I was ever so appreciative of the mentorship that I received from then First Lady Hillary Clinton. Um, she had an almost all male staff. There were a few, few guys, Steve and Neil, um, but she again created this environment that was so strong uh, for young women. And, the, and we were all in our mid to early twenties at the time and uh, instilled in us this you can do anything attitude and then pushed us to do that. So here I was special assistant working in the white house had never worked before, but learned and did. That was another thing that she said, you know, step up, learn, learn those, those positions, learn how the white house operates. I lived in the curator's office. It's a wonderful nook that's under the staircase on the ground floor of the white house filled with the history of the operations of the white house. And I would just love to, curl up there with several of their books and, and talk to the curators. And so I did do that. I learned quite a bit about the operations and those who had inhabited the White House uh, before. And, um, but she pushed us. So she was a great mentor. And then she's really told me, you know, you can uh, be 
social secretary. And I thought, oh my goodness, I don't think I can. And, and she's like, you have to have this confidence. You have a safety net here. You're going to go do this. So she and our, our chief of staff, Maggie Williams, and her deputy chief of staff, Evelyn Lamberman, they literally pushed me out of the nest. And I was so grateful for that. So it's one thing for me of those years that I am, um, I will forever appreciate them uh, for doing that with me and for me. I also remember though that these were just chaotic times. We were working so hard. I loved the work. It was 24 seven. I arrived to the White House at 6 a.m. We had senior staff meetings at seven. And then just, we would go on, on, on. Events happening on the South grounds, in the Rose Garden, on the second floor in the Yellow Oval Room, in the East Room. It was, there was constant action. There were, it was constant uh, events, things happening. We were moving an agenda forward. And I was a part of that agenda. I was in this office, the visual communications arm for the president's domestic agenda, primarily. There were some foreign policy events that we worked on, but I quickly learned that was really managed by my friends over at the State Department, that job that I then kept my eye on as chief of protocol. And I said, Hmm, that's one that I would love to have someday. But it was, um, those were wonderful days, magical days. When Bill Clinton left office, he continued to work with the Clintons and with nonprofits in the private sector, and then became involved again in campaign politics with the Hillary for President effort. In 2009, when Barack Obama came to the Oval Office, you were sworn in as a U.S. Chief of Protocol, that job that you had your eye on. What does the chief of protocol do? You know, everyone asks, you know, I, I know about protocol, but what exactly does protocol do? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, when it is done right, we are sort of silent operators. I say those swans that are gliding across a lake and we're ferociously very, very quickly um, paddling our feet beneath the water, but no one sees that. We just glide with elegance. Um, but protocol is, um, what we do is we create the foundation for diplomacy. We set in motion those wheels that allow diplomacy to take place. For instance, the president doesn't um, shake a hand or walk into a room and, or pick up a pen until I had and, my and the team that I worked with set that environment in place. Uh, that was from what room would be chosen, how the table was set, how did it look? Um, the lighting, the flowers, everything, color, decor, um, how they would engage one another. Would there be flags? Would there not? What was the seating? What was the precedence order? I mean, we went through a litany of, of box checking, of making sure and affirming that every detail was in place before that engagement would take place. Uh, and so that's really what, what protocol does. But um, Beyond that, that's a traditional, you know, we, we are the bridge between the US government and the foreign government. So when the president would invite someone to the, to the White House for a meeting, um, we made sure that the, our foreign guests were greeted at the airport. It was my favorite thing to do as chief of protocol, to extend my hand on behalf of the president of the United States and welcome our visitor. Uh, it was a wonderful moment. It would always kind of give me a chill, even if it was at three o'clock in the morning. It still gave me a bit of a chill. Um, but then from there on, we controlled their schedule. We made sure that they were informed at every moment what was happening with that schedule. And likewise, when the president traveled to a foreign 
country. I accompanied him. I was literally attached to President Obama's hip, making sure that at every event, he knew what to expect. Were there going to be any um, interesting greetings? Were there any special holidays that he needed to acknowledge or be aware of? Um, were there going to be some dietary issues? Um, interesting things that he would be a participant in. Um, you know, all along the way, just making sure that every one of those details, the details that are sometimes considered micro, uh, nuanced, but I have to say can have a major impact on uh, the relationships, the development of a relationship between our global leaders. Well, that's a perfect segue into the time that you told President Obama that he absolutely needed to help make noodles with the Chinese. <laughs> Can you tell everyone about that? Well, this is such a perfect example of how um, leaning into and, and, and you know, the focus of, of why I really wrote my book, you know, why is it important to lean into these um, cultural differences, understanding the people who you are either welcoming to your home, to your business, to your government, or that you are visiting. And so this was a first engagement between President Obama and President Hu Jintao. It was at the top of the administration, all eyes. Here is the President of the United States with the President of, of China meeting for the first time in China. And you know, what would this, what would this relationship be like? And, and what would come about? And so the Chinese are very good at protocol, extremely good at protocol. They walked us through every detail, not once, not twice, but three times. And so now we are at uh, the first night dinner and it was a private dinner uh, held at the Diutai, which is a, um, it's like the, the, the president of China's, uh, his own Camp David. And um, you know, again, every detail attended to. I'm now sitting in the back. We have a little bit of jet lag, but I'm with my, my colleagues and the dinner has begun. Suddenly my counterpart, my Chinese counterpart comes up to me and quite anxiously says, um, um, Ambassador Marshall, we, ha we have a special request of President Obama. And I say, um, well, yes. And he said, um, President Hu would like him to make a noodle. And I was like, hmm, okay, this seems odd because again, attended to every detail, we walked through everything. And I thought this must be incredibly important to President Hu if he, the, this is a last minute request. And they explained to me how it was going to happen, why it was important. And I thought, yes, the president should do this. So I, and I stepped forward to the president. I leaned in and whispered in his ear, Mr. President, President who would like you to make a noodle? And he looks up at me, kind of squints his eye like, what? But doesn't say a word. He know, I explained to him how, I explained to him why, and he realized, yes, this is important. He goes, okay, let's make a noodle. And he stood up shoulder to shoulder with President Hu, and they took this little piece of dough and they started to bounce it uh, together and created with the rest of the delegation now adding on to the line, started to create this very thin, long noodle. And what President Hu was saying is like this, this, this dough that is in front of us, you and I will have this very long relationship. And that symbolism, that moment, the, the, the camaraderie between these two global leaders, 
probably more effective than hours in the bilateral room. Uh, and of course, President Hu was so grateful to President Obama for participating in this custom that was so important in China. You have another really wonderful story about being on a train in Alaska on one of the Experience America trips. Tell us about that as well as what Experience America actually is. Oh, I'm so glad that you raised that, Kelly. This is a wonderful program. I created this um, a new division at the State Department, I mean, the Office of Protocol, called the Diplomatic Partnerships Division. And in that, our intention was to create a, a stronger bond, to create a, a more purposeful bond with the diplomatic Core, the foreign diplomatic corps. You know, again, I said they send the best of the best. I mean, these are the most extraordinary uh, diplomats are sent to the United States, and we were credentialing them, but we weren't engaging with them. We, as much as I thought that we should, and my predecessor, a wonderful chief of protocol, Ambassador Nancy Brinker had started this program. She developed this idea called Experience America, where it was to take the ambassadors outside, outside of the, uh, the beltway, as we call it here, outside of Washington, D.C., and to bring them to various parts of the United States so they can see the, the beauty of our country, the diversity of our country, the, the extraordinary differences in culture from, you know, the Southwest to the Northeast. And, um, and she was absolutely right. It was a brilliant program. And so we would bring 50 to 60, 70 ambassadors who would pay their own way and pay for their own lodging, but we would partner with uh, local chambers of commerce to develop programming that would showcase new business opportunities. Um, the food, of course, of that region. You know, if we went to, we went to so many fantastic places. We went to Atlanta and we talked about the, our civil rights um, movement here. We went down to New Orleans and it was a whole French and beignets experience. Chicago was deep dipped dish pizza and the mercantile. It was fantastic. And then when we went to Alaska, and that was actually my first time as well going to Alaska. Spectacular. If you haven't gone to Alaska, you gotta go to Alaska. It's spectacular. And the ambassadors thought so as well. We had the Russian ambassador along with us. And every moment that we could possibly do, we raised, rose, raised a glass to him and said, thank you for that $7 million deal. It's just wonderful. But as you point out, Kelly, we were this on our return train trip um, from Glacier Bay. Uh, there was, we were on this uh, clear top train and it was just beautiful. We had a little um, trio band that was on the train and the ambassadors were having a little bit of wine, as was I. And the Chilean ambassador grabbed the guitar from one of the musicians and he begins to strum with backup singers from Peru, Japan, Ireland, Croatia. Everybody is now chiming in and singing. I can't get no satisfaction by the stones. It was 
wonderful. It was a real moment because many of these ambassadors, they stay in their own region. They don't really get to know ambassadors from other regions in the world. Well, we were a true global community at that time. Nobody brings uh, people together like the Stones. No, that's absolutely correct. <laughs> and I do have to put a plug in for Nashville. If you have any sway with any of your successors, please consider an Experience America trip to Nashville. We have awesome food. We are music city. So see what you can do to help us out on that. <laughs> I absolutely will. Absolutely. And the up and coming uh, chief of protocol is a fantastic guy. And um, I think he would love coming oh, there. That, <laughs> that would be awesome. What, um, as chief of protocol, what are you most uh, proud of, of all of your accomplishments in that role? Oh my, you know, um, goodness, there are, there are really just so many, um, that I am proud of. Um, but I guess it was, I mean, if I, if I stated something a bit more general, Kelly, it really was the effective use of soft power. Um, you know, we, we have hard jobs <laughs> when you're in government, you are working extraordinary hours and, um, and you don't get to see your family often. And so, you know, you want to be effective. You, you want to make sure that what you are doing actually matters. And um, so finding new ways to, to sway, to persuade, to attract um, you know, our counterparts uh, into our foreign policy agenda, into the president and our administration's United States foreign policy agenda for me was really important. And so implementing a variety of ways in which I could do that to me was uh, the one aspect of my position that I'm, I'm most, the one of my accomplishment there uh, that I found to be the most important. And that's from um, realigning our gifts and how we could effectively use gifts uh, to introducing culinary diplomacy, um, that not missing a beat, not missing an opportunity in which we could talk about our great American cuisine and our traditions here, the importance of that, uh, whether it was at a coffee, a breakfast, a luncheon, a dinner, and, and then showcasing some of our great American chefs and allowing them to tell uh, the various stories about uh, food that we have here in the United States. Every moment, like I said, you know, protocol and diplomacy is about those micro details. It's those nuanced moments. Sometimes when crafted really well are so incredibly effective. I'll never forget President Xi's eyes when, when we introduced him and he was visiting the United States as vice president. When we introduced him to Ming Tsai, a very <laughs> Chinese American chef at the State Department. And you know, he met him and he felt so respected so welcomed and and his eyes just lit up and the two of them began to speak in Chinese and the interpreter couldn't even stay you know up with them couldn't keep up with them but it was a magical moment and you know I, I'll never forget both then Vice President Biden and Secretary Clinton turning and looking at me and said this was important this was very very good diplomacy and so it's those soft power tools how you can effectively use them to help knit together these relationships 
Well, let's get into your book. Um, I have to confess, I've read your book twice now and listened to it on audio. And um, with what I do, I, I relate to all of what you're saying across the board in so very many ways. What led you to write the book? And it's called Protocol, The Power of Diplomacy. Oh, well, thank you so much, uh, Kelly. Wow, twice. My husband hasn't even read it. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I, I was never interested in writing an autobiography or anything of that sort. What I wanted to do was, was, was share the lessons um, that I had learned, that had been shared with me, uh, the tools that I had developed while being both social secretary and chief of protocol with as many people as I can. Because those tools that I that I honed while um, in my position, um, yes, they were used for government service, but they could be used in business. They could be used in people's individual lives. And so I wanted to craft a book that would effectively help people see how they could pivot the power, change their game, you know, sort of amp up their um, their interactions. One of the one of the most important aspects of what I did in my position as chief of protocol was developing relationships. And it's not just about meeting someone and 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 being, as they say, proper and nice to them. It's about developing that relationship, developing that relationship, and and so they know you're invested in it, and then it creates a bond of trust. And once you have that bond of trust. Um, in a business relationship, a client is going to immediately invest in you because they know that, you know, over the years or over that time uh, that, that you have conveyed, um, you know, you've used various ways, you've spoken, you've, you've engaged rather in various ways that has built this core of trust. And that's what I really tried to do in my job as chief of protocol. So I, as you see in the various chapters, I outline, you know, who are they? Who are we? How do we define that? The importance of, you know, never leaving a, a diplomat hangry. Um, the, flex, the importance of flexibility, the yoga of protocol, where things sometimes are not, I mean, we would try to set them on a very straight path, a very particular path, because when you do that, when you set that path, if you know, your counterpart is going to engage with you that um, in a way that will lead them to the eventuality of your goals. So um, you, you have that pass up, but on occasion, you have to take a little off ramp. Things always don't go according to plan. So being prepared for when they don't go according to plan. Um, attire, language, sort of try to go through a broad sweep of all of those elements um, so that people can see, ah, here's a, here are three pointers. Here are a couple of ideas in which I could use in, in my life, um, whether for business or, or just my own personal need uh, to, to change the way in which I'm operating, I'm engaging. It's a charming book. And for anyone listening who hasn't read it yet, please go out and get it or download it on audio um, through Audible because it really has something for everybody. Um, it you, you do a wonderful job about talking about protocol and diplomacy in the workplace. You talk about, I'm in the nonprofit sector 
And so much of that is developing relationships. And that's what I think people in their own personal lives are trying to do. So I highly recommend it. Um, it's just a wonderful, wonderful book. And in it, you share a lot of really fascinating experiences. Uh, what is your favorite experience or most memorable experience of the Obama way? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, first of all, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the paperback just actually just came out. And I was thrilled because friends of mine who've been traveling now are actually going to airplanes are seeing it in airports, um, in, in airport shops. And so it's in the windows and I'm and it's incredibly pleased to send me a selfie with it. <laughs> um, you know, there are so many. I mean, the, the first day I raised my hand and I took the oath of office, standing with my son, my husband, my mother and father, and Secretary Clinton will be seared in my, my heart and memory forever. Um, but I have to say that traveling to the United Kingdom at the invitation of Her Majesty the Queen is, uh, well, the president was invited by Her Majesty. I just went along. Um, but it was an extraordinary, extraordinary moment in my life. And in particularly in my position, because you know, there is really isn't um, there, it, 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 there there are so many things that we have learned and we understand about the monarchy now. But um, you know, Queen Elizabeth II has a a real magic about her. And um, watching her in operation, she's her own chief of protocol. She's keeping her own time on her watch. Mr. President, move along, move along. Um, you know, everything that happened there, I went to reach to hold her, her purse at the evening ceremony. I was touch the bag. And I was wondering, well, what's in the bag? They said, we do not know what's in the bag, but we do not touch the bag. And of course, then I was dying to know what is in the bag. And to the exchange of gifts that we had, we, we worked long and hard on finding just the right gift and doing tons of research because there was a little oopsie doodle that occurred earlier in the administration. Um, her Majesty was very pleased with the gift. Uh, it was that was a wonderful moment. It just every and then at the end of the day, when she um, walked up to me, taps me on the shoulder, and she says, now, I see you around everywhere. Who exactly are you? And so I said, well, your majesty, I am um, the president's chief of protocol. And, and she said, oh, well, I just want to say you're doing a very fine job. Very fine job indeed. I was thrilled beyond belief. I was like, oh my gosh, did anybody hear that? Did anybody see that? Uh, I was just really pleased. So it was a, it was really a wonderful, wonderful trip. And uh, again, one that will be with me forever. And the fact that she actually sought you out to, to find out who you were. I mean, that, that's pretty incredible. <laughs> it was incredible. How did you balance competing cultural considerations between the U.S. and other countries? So uh, that, how did you know, uh, when did you want to focus on the U.S. and when did you want to 
how did you choose when to give a nod to either the visiting country or to the host country, depending on the circumstance? It's an excellent, excellent question, Kelly, because so many people get that a tinge confused. Um, when you're in the United States, you know, it's our, it's our country, it's our rules. When we travel abroad, we're in someone else's country, their rules. And we adhere to them to the best of our capacity abilities. Um, for instance, when we travel to um, parts of the Middle East where women are required to have their heads covered or oftentimes their entire bodies covered, you know, I would have discussion points with my counterparts, with the delegations in advance and uh, discuss, you know, what is the expectation? You know, in the United States, we really, we, we don't do this to women. This is not something that we feel comfortable with necessarily, but um, we certainly don't want to cause offense. And that's what you want to do. You want to make sure that you're not causing any offense. And so for government uh, delegations, what they would say is just please wear a tire that is um, you know, covered, uh, a longer skirt, longer or pants, um, not showing the shoulders, you no know, midriffs, nothing that was um, cut low, things of that sort. And, we, and we'd, so I would then go back to our US delegations and describe to them, this is the attire. In some countries, colors were offensive. In, in you know, one country where we traveled, wearing all white um, will, will signify death. And so we had, uh, it, was a, it was in the middle of summer and we were invited to a state dinner and you know, several women wanted to wear long white gowns. And I said, unless you're planning on putting a red or yellow pashmina on that, it is not acceptable. Because you, again, you want to avoid causing any offense. But here then in the United States, um, when our visitors would come, we had we always had exchanges. You know, what you want to do also in protocol is making sure that you avoid any pitfalls. You want people to feel welcomed. You want people to feel comfortable and respected. And so you make sure that you give them as much information in advance as possible. Uh, and then when certain questions arise that you have a solid answer for them or the best answer that you possibly can. So I would make sure that our visitors knew well in advance. This is our, this is our, 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 this is our schedule. At this stop, we will be, the president will be wearing this. The first lady will be wearing this. This is the expectation. Now, sometimes our visitors would come in at a black tie. We wear black tie at our state dinners. Sometimes if they're white tie affairs, uh, you know, that, that's a, a slightly different variation. And, but in their country, they don't wear black tie. So then we would again, have a discussion as to what would be appropriate on this occasion and, and come to an understanding. So um, discussing all of that, like I said, well in advance, making sure that people are informed and prepared so that in the moment they feel comfortable and no one feels as though they have caused any offense. What lessons can those of us outside of Washington take away from your experiences in building relationships and exercising the power of diplomacy? Oh, my goodness. Um, Especially all of those people traveling and seeing your book in the in the airport bookstores. Oh, well, I mean, Kelly, when you say that, you know, what what experiences, what 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 do you want me to 
what what exactly would you like me to to pinpoint here? The average person who doesn't work in Washington, probably for me, I guess it's more how can we, you talk a lot about empathy, how can we use empathy, uh, diplomacy protocol so that we're not the, the ugly American oh. <laughs> and, and get past that and use a lot of the tools that you discuss. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, I could go on and on about that. I mean, you and I need another good two, three hours. But um, quick synopsis is that, you know, I, I don't actually believe in the ugly American. I do believe that we have a certain pace. We have a certain um, tempo in our engagements. We're very quick. We want to get to the point. Um, you know, in many other cultures, it's a getting to know you period. They want to sit. They want to have a cup of tea, a date, a cookie, whatever it might be. They want to ease into this relationship. That's where they're building the trust. You know, there's a, um, I talk quite a bit about, I mean, you might remember, uh, Kelly, the uh, um, thin slicing moment, like that instant when you meet someone and you can judge, you know, is this someone who I feel as though is going to lead me down the right path? Um, you know, how, how, what, what am I getting from them? And that's the unfortunate experience. You know, I, I'd love to be with you and Pat in person um, and with our entire audience in person down in Tennessee, that would be fantastic. Um, and so it's the, the hardship of, of the virtual engagement because in person you get that click you get that moment, you get that feel for somebody. So knowing that, um, understanding the, um, that cultural nuance of, of a someone from Asia who takes their, their time in getting to know you, but as well, you know, those people who come to our country, you know, that there could be a quicker pace here, that we, we do a lunch and we get down to business. And so um, how might you fine tune those relationships by understanding that, understanding tone, understanding pace, um, the emphasis of, of language. Um, what might you be doing uh, with gestures that either can cause offense or be very welcoming, uh, making sure as, you know, President I would make sure that President Obama did and did not do was uh, cross his legs. Many men in the United States cross their legs and show the bottom of their shoe. Very simple action that can cause major offense in many, many countries. It's again, just knowing some of these simple um, uh, nuanced cultural differences that can make an enormous, enormous impact on how you engage with someone. Uh, and it, again, that is in your personal life. I'm a big believer also in etiquette and knowing etiquette, why? Because when you know it and you feel comfortable with it, it's secondary, it just happens. And so when you are with a client for the first time or your first job interview as a, as a young person, you know, just getting out of college and you're sitting at the table and there's you know, several forks and several knives and spoons and you're not quite sure what to do, um, appropriately greeting someone, sitting at the table, what glasses to use, if you know that, it all feels secondary and it doesn't feel foreign and doesn't add more anxiety to the moment. You know, I, I talk about where someone grabbed my bread at a very formal dinner and I had to explain to him, you know, that's 
my bread, not your bread. And he's like, no, no, I know you're wrong. And, and we sort of got into it a little bit and I had to teach him my, you know, my okay signs. The B on the left hand is for bread and the D on the right hand is for drink. So knowing that simple task can help people so very much. So I'm teaching children at a young age those simple rules of etiquette um, will help them as they advance through life because uh, knowing social codes of conduct is part of how we engage, about a part of how we develop that relationship, that important business or personal relationship. I went on and on and on again. I'm sorry, Kelly. I just oh, that's wonderful. I, if it were up to me, you could speak all night. You have a captive audience here. Now, you, you currently are ambassador in residence at the Atlantic Council, and part of your portfolio includes talking to the people about integrating cultural diplomacy into business. What are some tips that you have to offer there? For integrating that, integrating, I'm sorry, can you re repeat the second half? But I, oh, I I'm sorry. Know. What are some tips that you have to offer with regard to integrating cultural diplomacy into business? Oh, yes, yes. Um, so many different ways. Um, first of all, you know, where do you bring someone to your business? Do you just bring them to a regular old office or are you bringing them because you want to engage with them? You want them to know that this is somewhere very special. Are you bringing them to the corner office or a conference room? that is designed in a way to show the history of your company, perhaps um, some photographs of the, the first moments um, or, or what the business does, making sure that that place tells your story. It has your branding. That is really, really important. Um, also, you know, um, what, what does your office space say about you and your operation? Is it very buttoned up? Do you, are people in their own personal offices or is it a bit more open, you know, where, where you have uh, cubicles and open spaces and in conference rooms or, or um, uh, communal rooms that are clear? You know, I learned a, a little bit more about that when I walked into the, you know, because in government, it's a, certainly a lot more buttoned up, very, very private in office spaces. Uh, but when I joined the private sector and I started working with Bloomberg, you know, it's very open, very communal, and um, and it has a certain ethos to that. You you can you get a sense of what Bloomberg is about, uh, what Mike Bloomberg himself uh, is trying to uh, convey, and everyone calls him Mike, which was really hard for me because I kept calling him Mr. Mayor, and he said I have no idea who you're talking to. Um, so uh, you know how you you know, how you want to convey the, the ethos, the attitude, the personality of your business it can be the setup, um, also the attire, uh, you know, are people a little bit more buttoned up in their attire and being clear about that, making sure that HR actually uh, designates that, lets people know when they onboard what those expectations are. And as well, I really believe in a you know hiring um, cultural diversity officers. You know, help those 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 folks can really assist in from the moment that someone joins your business. What are those expectations? How can they best fit into um, 
the 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 whole um, uh, framework of your business. Uh, that is also, I think, incredibly important. Again, I could go on and on and on about this. Um, but I, I do want to put a note in here, Kelly, that um, I, I wrote one special chapter for women. Um, the book, of course, is intended for, of course, both, both men and women, everyone. Um, it's intended for everyone. But I, I, I do have a, 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 a chapter that, that's called uh, Negotiating While Female because, you know, when, we, when, when women, um, as Ginger Rogers says, you know, not only uh, do we have to do it well, but we have to do it dancing backwards and in heels. Um, so the expectations are a little higher. And, and also some of the rules change and particularly in international business. Um, I found that uh, when I was part of a delegation that um, in some countries uh, they wanted to seat me in the second seat as opposed to at the table in the first seat. Well, my suggestion is to women that um, no, you're part of the head, you're part of the delegation, you should be seated um, in the appropriate place as anyone else would, as a man or anyone else would at that, um, at that seat at the table. So that's where you have to sort of reinforce and, and look at sometimes the societal um, differences uh, when you travel abroad. And that can even occur in the United States. Um, just making sure that you take your place and uh, you, you, you assert um, your credibility at the level of, of person that you are. If you're the vice president and you are, you are leading that delegation, make sure that they know it. Capricia, I know I have a million other for you, but I also know that the audience does too. Oh, so I'm going to ask you one last question. Um, and then I know Pat has some questions online for you. And my last question for you right now is what suggestions can you offer young professionals who aspire to serve in the kind of work you do? Oh, my goodness. So I, I'm a big believer, and you know this, that um, internship opportunities. Uh, when you're in college, apply for them uh, in government because they, they need so much help. They really need so much help that you will get a lot of responsibility. And so, but apply early, apply in um, August and September. Don't wait until January. You will not, you will already be closed out. But apply for internship opportunities. And also then upon graduating, you'll go into those entry-level positions, the GS 14s and 15s, excuse me. Yes, seven. Fourteen, fifteen is really high. Um, sevens, uh, you know, because there you again can get a lot of experience, and 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 see, you know, where where may my interests lie, and and get to um, test out waters. As I stated, you know, having that Forrest Gump attitude early on in your career is so important. Take risks, go for it. Uh, and um, in those positions, you really can just get a lot of experience. Pat, All right. Send this over to you so um, you can get to the questions online. Thanks, Kelly. Uh, thanks for the, the great uh, conversation that uh, that you brought us with the ambassador. Ambassador, thanks again for being with us tonight. I know you have a busy schedule and uh, we appreciate you taking time to share your experiences. I'm still hoping that uh, you'll break some news tonight with some 
not yet re ever reported story of, of White House intrigue. Um, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But, uh, but, <laughs> but barring that, let me, let me share a, a few questions uh, from our audience. Uh, from Facebook Live via Twitter, someone asked, who was your favorite visiting head of state and why? Oh my goodness, who, oh, you know, you're not supposed to talk about you that. <laughs> um, but you know, there were, there were- We actually, won't tell anybody. Okay, just between us. Um, there were just, there were so many interesting for a variety of, of different reasons, um, chiefs of state and heads of government that would, you know, come through um, the White House, both when I was social secretary and as, as chief of protocol. Um, but, you know, I have to say that I was probably, um, I was most moved as social secretary when I met uh, President Mandela. It was... I, nothing short of a magical moment. Uh, there, there was this this time when I was asked if I could keep him company while he waited in what's called the map room, and it's on the ground floor of the White House. It's just outside of the president's elevator because the president was making his way over there, and he was in there with his delegation. And um, so, could I talk to him now? You know me, I love to talk to anyone. And so I walked in, I was like, I'd be happy to. And so I walked into the room and there is, an, there was, regrettably, there was an aura about this man. I mean, it was almost like you saw something glowing about him. He was so kind, so simply lovely and curious. And he shook my hand and he said, well, tell me, what, where, where are you from? Tell me, what do you do here? You know, he just kept asking question after question. And I find that fascinating when I meet leaders that they are so curious about those that they are meeting because I think it informs them about the people of you know, that, that place, the country, um, you know, that was the one thing that I, I watched time and again with President Clinton. He was, in, he was infinitely curious about people. You know, when we couldn't find him after an event, he was always like with the staff in the back kitchen talking, oh, your mom's from Tuscaloosa. I'm from, I know people from there. Does your mom know? I mean, it was amazing to watch that happen again and again. And, um, and that's the type of person that President Mandela was and his his just kindness exuded from him when he could have been an incredibly angry person for the manner in which he was treated for 27 years of his life. Well, we, I can share a similar experience with Ambassador Thomas Pickering, who was here in Nashville for an in-person speaking engagement uh, and, and visits elsewhere. Uh, I was driving him around town and he must have asked me what happened in every building in Nashville that we, we drove by and he quickly exhausted my Tennessee history uh, knowledge. Uh, we have another- Great diplomat, great diplomat. Fantastic guy. Um, uh, another question from Facebook Live, when President Obama, and this, this actually relates to your uh, UK story, uh, when President Obama had the Winston Churchill bust replaced by Martin Luther King in the Oval Office, there was a flap by critics who said it was a dig at the US-UK relationship. Was there genuine offense taken by the British or was it much ado about nothing? 
this much ado about nothing. But as we know, it did go back. So um, yeah, no, there was, uh, presidents have made decisions on, uh, and it's fascinating to see, you can actually Google up um, the comparative of one Oval Office to the next. It's a bit more about their own personal choices and their personality. No president wants to really use their office to make a dig at another country. They're our friend, you know, they're our closest ally. Um, so there's no way that he was uh, looking to make any sort of, of dig. Uh, this was just to showcase his affection for um, Martin Luther King. Uh, let me ask one, one last question from, <clears throat> excuse me, a member of our uh, Zoom audience, Robert Picard, as an observation and a question, I'll shorten in the interest of time. The 2016 election was a wake-up call for the country. Uh, Robert uh, relates that he, as a college-level history professor, notes that students come in not knowing much about U.S. or world history or anything about government. Uh, what uh, ki kinds of things can be done to improve history and civic education uh, preparation teachers, world history requirements. Uh, what's what's your take on the preparation of the American citizenry? And this is something that uh, we grapple with at the World Affairs Council. The uh, the knowledge of the world is is a challenge for us. So uh, anything you can share? I couldn't agree with Robert Moore. I think he's absolutely right that um, we should put. Uh, civics back into the curriculum as a standard uh, all throughout um, our country. Uh, in the meantime, I do know that um, uh, uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Sotomayor uh, promotes iCivics and is trying to um, make sure that um, I, if it's not in the school system, that outside of the school system, that students are learning a lot more about civics through um, iCivics. And so I, I too have been uh, raising that interest when I speak to uh, student organizations and schools. I, th I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's a shame that we don't have it in our schools. Well, we have two questions here that I'm going to just refer uh, our folks here. Uh, someone asked about language training and another about international relations careers. Uh, please take a look at our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash TNWAC. We have several international career panels that can answer those questions. And we uh, unfortunately are out of time. So I apologize for referring you there, but you'll get very long uh, dissertations on, on answers to your question. Uh, well, Ambassador, again, thank you so much for being with us. Kelly, thank you for your great uh, conversation. Um, and and I, I will extend the invitation that when things return to the new normal, whatever that uh, might be, uh, you're always welcome here in Nashville. We'd like to show you some Tennessee hospitality and uh, take you around town to uh, experience some of our music and talk to some people here about your experiences in international affairs and and White House Protocol and Diplomacy. Again, the book is Protocol, The Power of Diplomacy and How to Make It Work for You. So there's, there's the hook, there's something in it for you. Uh, look for that now out in paperback. And uh, the author is Ambassador Capricia Benavik Marshall. Ambassador, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you so very much for having me. Have a good evening. Good night. Good night.